podcast. Hi, I'm Ruth. And I'm Tina. And this is Talkin' Smash. The podcast where we wear scarves and talk about smash. Tina, tell me about your scarf. It is beauteous. I am, I am wearing um, a, a seasonal transitional scarf because it's all autumn colors, but it's like a, a like a winter motif with like evergreens and snowflakes and stuff like that. Yeah, it's gorgeous because it has like different sections and it's like each section is sort of its own Christmas sweater, but in an I, awesome way. I think this was a, I'm pretty sure this is my husband's. And I think my stepmom got it for him. And there's nothing. But it looks like a long husband. scarf, which would make sense that it would maybe have been a gift for your husband because he's tall. Yeah, he so, is quite tall. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's lovely. It felt right. It felt right yeah. for like, you know, this, because it's the, the very end of November. Yes. That's when we're recording this. Who knows when we'll put it out. That'll depend on when I get around to editing it. But um, <laughs> this is a know, hobby. I, Someone once tried to um, like insult me on Twitter by saying that like only ten people were following our show account. I'm like, it's a hobby. <laughs> like it's it's just this thing we do. It's like it's okay that only yeah. ten people are sub- follow the show on Twitter. Yes, and you know what? We have I think literally dozens of listeners. So. Yeah. Listen, yeah. we have two cast members following us on Twitter. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's it's just fun. And hobbies can just be hobbies. You don't need you know? an Etsy store for everything. Yep. Um, yes. Well, and should my... we have a store for merch? <laughs> 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 like, if we were, like, really ambitious, yes, we would be one of those. Pe- I did look into seeing if Scarfs.com wanted to sponsor us, but I don't know if we have the numbers yet. <laughs> I don't think we do. Um, if we were to have a store, I think our merchandise would be like a least problematic man sticker. I mm. could, I think that could be delightful. Yeah, or least problematic man pin. Yeah, that could be bequeathed upon the least problematic man in someone's life, and that man could wear it with pride. Yeah, um, and of course we'd have scarves. Oh my gosh, yes. And I don't think I'd want to do anything with Toronto Burke's name on it. Because Alyssa Milano has done enough to harm that woman. <laughs> yeah, yes. We can let Toronto Burke profit off of Toronto Burke. Yeah. <laughs> and my scarf here is a very simple cream colored number with a little dangly fringe at the end. It's pretty. It's it elegante. I got it for a wedding to go, like for a summer wedding to go. It's like a little, a little wrap to go with the dress. All right, so let us talk about this episode of Smash. I think we have a lot to talk about. We do. Which episode of Smash are we talking about? Okay, so we are talking about episode 114, Previews, and the NBC.com synopsis is Bombshell Faces, its first audience just as a major crisis hits Rebecca Duvall. And it was uh, directed by Robert Duncan McNeil, who is was also on Star Trek Voyager. And yes! <laughs> this is one of the fun facts I found out yesterday. This is so exciting. Last episode, directed by Roxanne Dawson, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Bolana Torres from yeah. Star, Star Trek Enterprise. This week, Robert Duncan McNeil. What, what a strange and lovely coincidence. What a world. <laughs> um, and then it was written by David Marshall Grant, who has 
been an actor and a playwright and a showrunner. Yes. So both the director and the writer were, are, are an actor turned something else. Yes. Robert Duncan McNeil, actor turned director. He was Lieutenant Tom Paris on Star Mm. Trek. Did I say Enterprise before? Oh, no. It's Star Trek Voyager. They're on Voyager. Voyager. That was a grievous error on my, on, on my part, though. Yes, they are both from Voyager, you know, under, under the leadership of Captain Janeway. I yes. don't, I am not well-versed in Star Trek. And I like Star Trek. Like, I like, mm-hmm. um, I always want to call them the new power generation. Uh, the next generation. Uh, <laughs> not... <laughs> <laughs> but I could see like a Star Trek Prince mashup. That would be great. Um, and like, I've, you know, I know it always surprises me that there's only like a handful of original episodes with that original cast. Mm-hmm. I, I know. feel like I've seen a good, decent chunk of them. You probably have. And there are some in the original series that are just bad. Um, yeah. So yeah, that are perfectly okay to miss. Um, and there are some that are so bad that they're great, such as the episode called Spock's Brain, where <laughs> these cave women in fur bikinis steal Spock's brain from his body so that it can run their planet. Okay. It's a long story. That, <laughs> that, that one you can, that, that is not one of the highlights of the series. But um, I think, have I talked before here how I think there's more overlap than one might think between sci-fi fans and musical theater fans i don't think you've gone into that okay i think there's a lot of overlap between sci-fi fans and musical theater fans i think there's a lot of i'll try to be like short and articulate about this but like in both like sci-fi fantasy and in musical theater you're you're dealing with you're you're dealing with something that is not kind of pedestrian day-to-day reality Mm -hmm. and so i think both attract people who are willing to like go with that and not kind of like sit there with their arms folded and be like, well, this would never happen. So I think that, you know, and they both, I think, lend themselves to a certain epic grandeur and scale. I like that. I think, you know, if someone makes a Doctor Who musical or something like that, someday, (laughs) and I'm not a Doctor Who person, so I probably, you know, so I know nothing about Doctor Who. Um, except sort of what you absorb through the zeitgeist. Um, I know there's Daleks and companions. That's about it. Ooh, but, I, I, should, I should show you the first uh, Weeping Angels episode. Oh, yes. And you've told me about the Weeping Angels. Yes. And they seem very scary. Um, yes. <laughs> they seem very disturbing. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I have to like adorn myself with like earrings that look like them. And, you know, my children wear t-shirts with them on there because I have to you have to normalize them or like, yes, yes. They're so scary. Yeah. Oh, and another thing, sci-fi, you know, sci-fi to musical theater is I think sci-fi, a lot of theater actors like Shakespearean actors and, you know, theater actors in general end up in sci-fi mm. again, because you need someone. A lot of times you need someone like for purely practical reasons, you need someone who can enunciate through heavy prosthetics Mm. um, and you need someone who can step into like a heightened world and really shoot for the shoot for the fences and Mm. Shakespearean actors, theater actors are kind of primed to do that. It makes me think about the, 
the final season of Slings and Arrows and how our Shakespearean actor like goes into like a sci-fi project and yeah such and such happens. <laughs> well, we could do a Slings and Arrows podcast. If we ever finish Smash, we could do a Slings and Arrows podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we do- and again, it's only 3 seasons and they're in they're they're nice like bite-sized 12-13 episode seasons. Yeah. So, we could handle that. Um, oh my gosh, and we could talk <laughs> about Luke Kirby. You know, we could talk about Luke Kirby. I could talk about Luke Kirby a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. So, but anyway, so Robert Duncan McNeil directed this episode. He was Lieutenant Tom Paris on Voyager. <laughs> he has a theater background. He went to Juilliard and he did Six Degrees of Separation on Broadway with Stocker Channing. So, yes, he is a, so he is, you know, he is one, he is a good example of my theory that you need theater actors to do sci fi. You know what? I'm, I'm buying it. Okay. Oh, yes. And David Marshall Grant. You mentioned that, that that he was the writer, and yeah, he is a delight. So I recognize him most as the guy from Devil Wears Prada, who plays Miranda's boss. Oh, I didn't realize that was him. That's so cool. He's the one who's like, oh, so we're reshooting the whatchamacallit thing. And she's like, well, you know, that sounds very expensive, doesn't it, Miranda? Um, <laughs> he's that guy. Um <sighs> Yes, but he 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 was in the um, I didn't know this till yesterday, but I'm very excited about it. He was in the initial Broadway run of Angels in America playing Joe Pitt. Yes, that I know. Yes. So that is um, that's some theater bona fides for you. Yeah, for sure. And he he earlier this season wrote The Cost of Art. That's the one where. Eileen has to sell her painting oh. <laughs> to the Jonas brother. I thought you were referencing some important work that came out during the pandemic. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> okay. No, you're just talking about another episode of Smash. It's, okay. I'm, I know what another episode about. of Smash. <laughs> yes. I like that episode. I All think right. The thing that I, I see between that episode and this episode is that I think he gets the actual conflict of making a show really well. Yes. And what I like about this is so much of the conflict is centered around the show. And Mm -hmm. as opposed, there's certainly a lot of personal drama as well, but like everything, like the show is the center of the episode and everything else is kind of happening around the show. Mm -hmm. And I like that. Should we do our scarf count? Yes, I counted. I counted nine. Oh, oh, we're very, we're very close. I counted eight, and okay. um, I didn't count any any background actor scarves. There were because there were a ton of those as people were walking into the church, and I'm like, I just can't. So, <laughs> um, but I, I did count. A, I did count like three ensemble slash like churchgoers okay i think the most notable scarf well let's see let's run through our scarves this will the first scarf i believe i saw was rebecca's and it was it was a stunner it was like this emerald green paisley it was very pretty yes 
Then uh, Jessica had a pink knit scarf that she wore throughout the episode off and on. Another chorus member had a red scarf. This is when they're sitting, you know, in the house of the theater waiting Mm -hmm. to get notes for the first time. Yeah, that's one of the ones I got. Yeah. Yes. Randall had some bold stripes. Yep. Eileen had a leopard print. I missed that one. That's when she and Randall are talking um, outside after... Rebecca's been poisoned. We'll get to that. Um, And then at the church, uh, Tom was wearing his gray silk scarf, which we've seen before. I like it when we see like repeats on characters because it really makes them feel real, you know? Like, yeah, he packed one scarf and that's, you know, of course. (laughs) Like, how many do you need? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Ivy had like this white, like lacy crochet kind of scarf um, Mm -hmm. for the church. And then... At the end, when Rebecca is packing up from her hospital stay, Mm -hmm. she has like a maroon scarf, a much more somber scarf after her brush with death. Yes. It is a scarf of humility. Mm, Yes, indeed. Okay. So so I I missed Eileen. So that brought me up to 10. And what was eight? Yes. Your count was eight. So we could split the difference and call this nine. Nine scarves this week. So mm. a modest number of scarves. Yeah, and Rebecca had in the Boston. scarves. Oh, yes. So whatever we want to interpret <laughs> into the scarf. She's logic. the one that comes closest to dying. I don't know. If you die, you wear the most scarves. Yeah. Or, so we'll say nine official scarves this week. All right. So let's dive in to the episode. As one may recall, we left the end of last week. We left Dev and Ivy in the hotel bar. And this week we open in a hotel room. It's a bright sunny morning. We uh, pan to a bed here. We have a topless Dev. So, and even though he's topless, he's still wearing his watch. And (laughs) like maybe he had a, a bit of a drunken evening and oh, wait, he rolls over. There's Ivy, also topless, probably, but you know, with the 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 sheet it's up to her neck. Yes, yes. as a standard network uh, yeah. television. So um, wrapped in a sheet to indicate network nudity. <laughs> <laughs> and then we cut to um, the theater where Jessica and Karen are, are walking into the house. Karen uh, is, is carrying her um, fancy bag that Rebecca oh, gave yes. her. And, you know, it, it's like the black leather one with like the gold studs. And, but Karen is also wearing like a very sort of flimsy gray sweater, like a layered level. And I don't know how the sweater and the bag interact without mutual destruction. That is a good point. But you know, you you raise, you know, something else. Karen is in when she's not in costume, she's in she's in gray for a lot of this episode, I feel like she's very kind of muted. And she had a rough week last week. And now her clothing, I think reflects that a bit. Um, She's very like, and and I I find Karen in this episode. There's, there's like a flatness. So it's like, a, it's like a, Karen's trying to be as like unoffensive 
as possible. I, I agree. She really is trying to appeal to everyone and make herself amenable to everyone. And yeah, because I think her, her fight with Dev last week is, was really tough on her, I think. Yeah. And so anyway, Karen has just told Jessica what Ivy told her last night, which is that Derek is sleeping with Rebecca. And so then Jessica asks Karen if she can use her phone to call Ivy. It's a running bit this episode that Jessica never has her phone. It frustrated me. Well, I don't, I couldn't recall and I didn't go back to look and to see if this was like a running bit throughout the whole of the season because if it was a running bit throughout the whole of the season then this was like a great like then that was great that they Mm -hmm. used that for like plot purposes this week um for to like really give us some some scares but i don't know if that's just something they made up this week but at least they did refer to it more than once so (laughs) so perhaps they have retconned that Jessica never has her phone with her. But yeah, so Jessica says, oh, hey, Karen, can't borrow your phone? Because like, uh, Ivy's not here and she was drinking a lot last night and she has to be on time because after everything that happened with Heaven on Earth, like she's on thin ice and she can't like, you know, have any more black marks against her. So Karen gives Jessica her phone and then we come back to the hotel room and we've got two phones on the floor ringing and you're like, oh no, oh no, Dev is going to pick up the phone. And you know, but, (laughs) but Ivy gets to it in time saying, no, 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 that's my phone. And um, she sees Karen's name up, you know, flash up because it's Karen's cell phone that is calling her. And she's like, oh, but she picks it up and it's Jessica and Jessica's just like, hey girl, where are you? So we have this, uh, I don't know, psycho-esque moment of like, oh no, everything's going to come out, but it doesn't come out. Not yet. And so then Ivy and Dev are like, yeah, we're just not going to, you know, we're not going to tell anyone about this. And they go about their day. Then outside the theater, we see Julia with Frank and Leo and she's about to go into the theater and Leo's like, well, I'm rooting for your mom or whatever. And then a taxi pulls up and who gets out? Michael Swift. That's who gets out. And they all kind of awkwardly look at each other. And then he walks into the theater and then Leo says, I'm not the only one who enjoyed that. And Frank says, yes. And that's kind of a weird line. It was super weird. Oh. I rebound it a few times. Cause I was like, I, I, I must've missed something, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then, you know, Julia goes into the theater and she sees Eileen and she sees Tom and Tom's like, welcome. And she's like, I'm not talking to you. I'm here, but I'm not talking to you. And then we uh, go to Rebecca's dressing room where she and Derek, Derek comes into her dressing room and like they make out and it's, it's real, real weird and gross. And I think, I think the Rebecca and Derek getting together thing might be like the most unearned plot point in smash season one yeah it's kind of like you're eating a piece of salmon and it's fine and you're eating it and then you come to a piece of it that's like completely raw and you're like what happened and i feel like that is the derek and rebecca thing anyway then eileen you know catches derek coming out of rebecca's dressing room and she's like, oh, so you thought there wasn't enough drama going on. You thought this was a great idea. And he's like, I'm doing this for the show. What does he say? He says more about this later, but, you know. I'm giving her the attention she needs or something yes. like that. Yes. Yeah. And Eileen's like, okay, fine. 
but if this goes wrong, I'm going to strangle you. <laughs> I just feel like nobody writes Rebecca the same way twice. There's a podcast I listened to about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where they talk about how Joyce in the first three seasons of Buffy is essentially a conflict vending machine. You know, Joyce is whoever they need her to be that week. So sometimes like, you know, she's super on Buffy's case and, you know, and involved. And then other weeks she's like, oh yeah, Buffy, go clubbing at 3 a.m. That's fine. And like, yeah, there's no kind of continuity week to week. Yeah, I think you could probably make the case there, there's an element of that with Rebecca as well in terms of she is who we need, who the plot needs her to be this week. I find Rebecca a more and more interesting character, though, on this rewatch. Because, like, there's... Because sometimes they play her as, like, um, this... You know, this, like, out-of-touch movie star who's just, like, so famous and fabulous that, like you know, sort of like nothing penetrates her bubble. But then I think there is always this like kind of undercurrent of savviness about her though. But no, because something happens. Well, maybe let's talk about it now since we're later on, but like not too much later on. uh, Karen confronts Rebecca. Well, confront is too strong a word, but Karen is like, you slept with Derek. <laughs> and uh, Rebecca is like, oh, I'm so sorry. Were you interested in him? And, <laughs> and you know, Karen's like, no, he was dating Ivy. And she's like, which one is Ivy again? And I think, I think you could read it either way. And we last, last episode, we talked a lot about how Rebecca definitely knew that Derek and Ivy were dating because Mm -hmm. they talked about going on a date in front of Rebecca, you know, that Ivy was taking him out for his birthday dinner and like, Oh, don't worry. I'll have him back to you soon or whatever. So it could be, you know, just a kind of blatant breach of continuity that like, we're going to ignore what happened in the last episode because it doesn't suit this episode's purpose. Or it could be, that Rebecca really is just so famous and insulated that, yeah, she doesn't know the names of anyone else in the cast besides Karen and (laughs) their words and actions simply don't penetrate like her consciousness, Mm -hmm. even though she like physically sees and hears them. What do you think? I think there's a lack of, consistency yeah I think the thing is is like I like the savvy Rebecca that kind of bubbles up from time to time I think I project the savvy Rebecca onto the dim Rebecca even when Mm -hmm. even when the savvy Rebecca may not actually be in the writing you know Karen uses the word ambitious in this episode and I think I think that Ivy and Rebecca are more ambitious than Karen. And it maybe I don't know if it's because we just spend more time with Ivy because she's, you know, like the other lead, the co-lead. But you know, we see Ivy going after what she wants and mm-hmm. we see You know what? Maybe it is with the whole character of Rebecca is 
we never really know why she wants to do this show. I think maybe that is the fundamental flaw because you'd think if a giant movie star who had no like singing and dancing background was going to spend a lot of time and work very hard to be in a Broadway musical that it would be because it's something they really loved. And yet we never get a sense that Rebecca knows much about Broadway musicals. Mm-hmm. You know, no, is she, is she looking, is it, is, you know, just even a line like, you know, I haven't been nominated for an acting award in 15 years or something like just something where it's oh, like, you know, I'm, I'm a movie a, star and mm, not an actress anymore. And, and that would be um, a great motivation mm-hmm. for her to like be doing the show because again, because if you are a movie star and you do Broadway, you often get rewarded with a Tony just because yeah. they very much appreciate a famous person coming <laughs> to sell some tickets. <laughs> it's like because you're Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking of, but I didn't say it. <laughs> I didn't see that show. She could have been great. I don't know. <laughs> that that is what I was thinking of. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I think with Rebecca, there was a lot of unmet potential with that character, and I think we would have. Mm-hmm. I think we would have preferred, and I think the show would have been better served by a Rebecca who was just always sharp. Who was always sharp and maybe also sharp enough to sometimes play the role of like, I'm the movie star who just doesn't notice things because I'm too famous. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we tend to toggle back and forth. You know, Derek says something about you know I think it was last episode right where he's like you know you're you know you're a star like act like it like act more like a diva oh well that was just nonsense words he was yeah it was nonsense words (laughs) but I you know we don't um you know when I used to to teach theater to, to teenagers I would do a series of activities with them to help them understand like who has uh, the power in a scene mm-hmm. and a lot of it was like very physical theater-esque type things like you know statues and stuff like that and and also simultaneously I've been uh, listening a lot to Kanye West's uh, magnum opus My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy which is an album I love in general but it's, it's also it's the 10th anniversary of its release and it's just brilliant the song power has been really stuck in my head, uh, especially after rewatching this episode and like thinking about Rebecca's power and like who's misusing power throughout this episode. And, you know, we don't actually, we, we had this great opportunity in the show to like, well, you know, what happens when you throw a movie star into the theater world? And we, we didn't actually see Rebecca get to throw around her power in ways that could have been, interesting we saw like occasional diva moments like the smoothie there were no stakes for Rebecca and that's the problem she had no stakes because we didn't know what she what why she was doing this you know why she was signing up to do all this work and what the stakes were for her if she failed at this mm-hmm. so or even like yes we yeah theater world and we, we didn't actually see Rebecca get to throw around her power in ways that could have been interesting. We saw like 
occasional diva moments, like the smoothie. There were no stakes for Rebecca. And that's the problem. She had no stakes because we didn't know what she, what, why she was doing this, you know, why she was signing up to do all this work and what the stakes were for her if she failed at this. Mm-hmm. So, or even like, yes, we, yeah, we, there may be been a discussion with Randall or with Eileen, like that maybe she signed on without really thinking about it or like kind of on a whim because she wanted to get away from her douchey boyfriend or yeah, really pragmatic reason like that. Like she just needed a reason to not be in Los Angeles, but now that she's in it, like it has, she has to succeed in it. Otherwise yeah. it's a blow. And there's her. been, I mean, there are tons and tons of, of, film actors and like bonafide like movie stars who have done Broadway <laughs> shows and um, and some of it is bizarre and some of it's like quite wonderful. Um, so there's definitely like, you know, they could have referenced like Catherine Hepburn playing Coco Chanel in a musical <laughs> or um, uh, uh, Natasha uh, Natasha Richardson. Richardson. Yeah. Who, you know, isn't wasn't particularly known for like singing or anything, and of course, like killed her Sally Bowles in Cabaret. Mm. It was so good. It's one of like the great performances, you know. And I think that's a, the line. Like a show like this always walks to in terms of making making some references to like the real world and real things mm-hmm. that happened to give it like kind of like that sheen of verisimilitude but like mm. it, they can't do it too much either because but then you note because then you're like but everyone else you're talking about is real but i know you're fictional you know it's a weird <laughs> like balancing act yeah maybe we need to learn a bit more about rebecca even in passing about what her deal was <laughs> yeah because it's like intellectually we know this character is not going to be the one who plays her on broadway like we know rebecca is not as viewers of television, yeah. yes, we know <laughs> this is not how the story ends, you know? Yes. So, yeah. So give us, since we know that, like, why should we care about this character? Mm-hmm. But yes, she's, she's intermittently fascinating, though, I think. So, yes. Yeah. So then we are back in the theater and all of the cast is uh, sitting, sitting in seats in the house waiting for notes. And uh, Ivy comes in. Ivy is wearing a bright red shirt and a bright red lip. She's clearly trying to put a good face on things. Mm -hmm. But she looks bedraggled. She does not. She's not glorious. (laughs) Yeah, she looks. Yeah, but despite it, she looks. Yeah, a little tense. Yes, a little haggard. Her hair is very straight, which is. I don't think how we. Yeah, her hair is very just straight and flat. Which yes. is not how we're used to it, I think. Yes. Um, she's usually got a lot more bounce. But, um, you know, Karen comes up to her and says, like, how are you doing? And, you know, I'm sorry. I had no idea. And Ivy's like, no, I know. This was not your fault. I'm sorry I got mad at you. Please don't be nice to me. <laughs> because, And, of course, Karen, this works on two levels because Karen thinks she's saying this because she's really upset. And, like, there's that thing, like, when when someone's nights to you when you're upset and you're trying to hold it together, you can't hold it together anymore. But it's also because <sighs> Ivy just slept with her boyfriend and Karen doesn't know. And Ivy knows all this and just can't, you know? Yeah. And Bobby has a great line. Bobby is just great throughout this episode. Kind of like, 
you know, kind of just walking by and, you know, slinging a line off here and there. He says, that's what happens. You go out of town and all hell breaks loose. Because, of course, now everyone knows that Derek and Rebecca are a thing. So Derek comes out on stage uh, to give the cast notes. <laughs> and he says, we're in pretty good shape for our first preview tonight. And I wrote in my notes, you lie, Derek. You're a lying liar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then he also goes on to be like, and we've got Michael Swift back. And everyone claps that we've got Michael Swift here. And because Michael Swift has just shown up in town today, we're going to work on a lot of the DiMaggio stuff to get him up to speed on like all everything that's changed since they did the workshop, which was probably like what realistically at least eight weeks ago. So yeah, Michael Swift's a pro. I'm sure he'll pick it all up just like that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think Derek knows he's lying, but, but I think sometimes it is the director's job to lie in situations. like Yeah. Yeah. To just be like, yes, good job, team. Everything's going to be just fine. So we already talked about Karen and Rebecca talking. Uh, oh, so then we uh, kind of cut to the cast in their dressing rooms and everyone is in their costume and we see people coming into the theater. So this is it. This is the night, the opening show, the first preview. And Nick, Nick is here. Nick comes in and surprises Eileen in the lobby and he's wearing a cast. We don't know why. Eileen asked how that happened. And he's like, ah, you don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, backstage, Karen is still trying to reach Dev. She hasn't been able to get in touch with him all day. She's called him, texted him, etc. Oh, and I think one other thing, interesting thing to note here is, so Karen and Ivy and Jessica are all in the, in, all in identical wigs at this point, because they're, they're, uh, First of all, all the wigs in this week's episode were mwah, chef's kiss. They were all gorgeous. But I really liked, you know, having the three of them all in the same wig because, because again, th- they're going on stage to be the shadow selves for Marilyn. Um, and they're all in this kind of like brown, you know, 1940s wavy uh, shoulder length wig. But it also like kind of underlines the point of like, they're the chorus, they're the background. So... They are, they are dressed accordingly for these shadow selves. So then the curtain rises. Rebecca, she's in an early Marilyn wig, so kind of a reddish, blondish, brownish color. And she starts singing Fade In on a Girl. And she's okay. She's okay. Um, this was, I think, was this the same song she sang in the... The first day she came to rehearsal too. Yes. Yes. And it, yeah. So, and, it, and it was not yeah. good then at all. And it was not good at all then. It is so much better now in terms mm-hmm. of she's not pushing and she's on key and everything. But, and yet, so even though she's doing well and she's doing so much better, she has like a tenth of the power of Ivy when we've seen mm-hmm. Ivy sing this or seen yeah. Karen sing this. So then it's great. We, we keep cutting back and forth to like the cast, like in the dressing room and backstage and like then faces in the audience. And we hear little snippets of 20th century Fox Mambo and then little snippets of national pastime and backstage Karen in the dressing room, Karen's checking her phone again, but it was really fun hearing like just a snippet of the number because 
as a viewer, I think you got to feel like very like in the know of like, I know that song. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first one they did. And then we see Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So, and it looks exactly like it did in the fantasy version that we saw when Ivy and Michael Swift did it uh, when Mm -hmm. they were rehearsing for the workshop, except now that's, except now it's Rebecca in that costume and wig Mm -hmm. instead of, instead of Ivy. And then Rebecca accidentally sits outside of the spotlight when she and Joe DiMaggio sit down on the bench. You know, I think, I think when the curtain rises too, like, you know, we keep cutting back and forth to, you know, the faces in the audience and, Faces in the audience, I think, do a lot of really good work, like, during this preview. Like, we see Derek, like, sit down when, like, the lights go down, and, like, he looks, he looks nervous. (laughs) (laughs) And that's great. We see Julie and Tom singing together. We see Frank and Leo singing together. So then we see Rebecca in her dressing room, and she's kind of kvetching to the dresser, like, about something that Michael Swift did. Like he, mm-hmm. he didn't hold his hand out at the right time and made, and he said he, he made he looked like an idiot. And yeah, uh, the dresser's like, I'm sure it was fine. And Randall brings in her green smoothie for her. Yeah. And then, oh, now we're at the, we're at the part I'm very excited to talk about. And I'm probably not going to be too articulate about it because I just love it so much. Um, so then we're back on stage. We see the end of the Yes Man number. This is like with all the, with all the studio lackeys, you know, in their towels, conging behind, um, what's his name? Zanuck. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we have some interstitial music at the end of the number where, oh, what's this? Underneath Zanuck's robe, he's got his suit on. And like he dances into his loafers and, you know, he gets a jacket on. And then like, oh, behind him, like his his office is forming with like this, you know, big desk and big windows and this Chesterfield sofa. And he's like, all right, you know, basically screw this Marilyn Monroe gal. It's time to get some new girls in here. And he says, bring on the new tomatoes. <laughs> and it's so gross. And you know, he's like, heirloom, plum, cherry. <laughs> yes. And then he goes to his desk and the chair swivels around and guess who's in it? It's Karen. Oh no, it's Ivy. I it's forgot. Ivy, oh my yeah. god. It's Ivy. And now she's in her 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 real hair, but it's all curled up and she's got this slinky bright green number on and she starts singing to him about how she wants to be a a, a star and she's got all she knows what it takes and she's got the moves and then he turns around and there's Karen popping up from behind his sofa and she's got on her real hair all dolled up in a very slinky dress and a bright red lip and she starts um very slinkily serenading him about how she's got what it takes and then he sits down on the sofa and two more dancers pop up um and then and then you know we we blink and then three more dancers pop up from behind the sofa. And this is my favorite number in all of Smash. <laughs> I think it's the the combination of Yes Man into this number where like it is like the women taking charge. And it's just like the number is kind of like is a complete it's like a little surprise for us, a little treat. And I love it. Um, and also I didn't realize it 
until I was watching it for the second time. But remember in the last episode, how Tom was talking about like, I've got a great number for Karen and Ivy that we can just slot right in the show. This oh, is that number. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And Derek is like, you want to put a new number in during tech? And he's like, yes. And, um, <laughs> and Derek agrees to do it. You know, if Tom will write a scene for him. So that's this number. And I love it because I think the girls are all, the women are all so fabulous in it. And it's a happy surprise. You know, okay. So I found like the number is well staged and like, it's a, you know, good song and everyone looks great. Like I, but I was, I have to say that I was just disturbed that you know the casting couch is being presented as an opportunity for women because <laughs> <laughs> yes you know. i mean as was like yeah like the women are literally diving onto the casting couch <laughs> yeah um and as you know going back to uh you know the poet kanye west <laughs> you know as he asks he, he ponders in that song power the dangers of one man having too much of it and the decadence and the like the abuse and the inevitable fall from grace that'll happen and it got me thinking about like how during when, when all the stuff about weinstein started coming out so so many people were like but if he was like, have sex with me and I'll give you a part and you had sex with him, then that's consensual and that's okay. <laughs> and so I felt like the, like the song was kind of reinforcing that trope that like it's the women who are going to Hollywood and saying like, I'll do this <laughs> to get ahead. <laughs> like they're the ones with the power. Mm -hmm. I and think... I, I think, like, for this number to make sense in the Marilyn musical, like, I think it would depend on, like, the size of Daryl Zanuck's part in the musical. Mm, yeah. Um, in terms of if it was, like, if it if the musical was, like, really, like, Marilyn and Zanuck as, like, the two antagonists going head to head. Yeah. Maybe this song would make sense in the musical in terms of, like, this is Zanuck's POV we're seeing. Yeah. This is how he views women which in obviously a gross way to him, they are yeah. tomatoes um, yeah. and like they're replaceable, interchangeable, et cetera. So like, this is how he sees the women who like come to like meet with him or yeah. whatever. I mean, it's um, a great villain scene. Don't get me wrong. It is yes. a great villain scene. Yes. Know, and, and it's out of context, you know, so I'm, I'm acknowledging all that. I just, uh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> you're you're right. You're right that like in at least in like where how where we in the context we're seeing it they they really haven't like kind of laid in there that this is gross. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah, is the I, audience appreciating this? I'm now I'm thinking about Dave Chappelle and when he walked away from his Comedy Central deal, you know, that like $50 million deal that, you know, nobody could understand what was going on, that you could just like leave your show after being offered so much money. And it was just, and like part of it, he tells um, 
this story, I think when he did his big like Oprah interview and he, you know, he talks about how like he wasn't sure why people were laughing at the show. Sometimes he worried that people weren't understanding the message of what he was trying to, to say. And like, they were laughing at the unfunny parts mm-hmm. or they were laughing in agreement with the racist character, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or something they were laughing like that. For the wrong reasons. Yeah. So again, this is just like a tiny little blip in a silly little show. But yeah, it's like, does the audience know at this point? I mean, I mean, I mean, to, like, I know to us, like, we know, you say Daryl Zanuck, we conjure up an image and everything, but like, Yeah, I guess I don't know if they even established like who this character is, like for the audience, like assuming that at some point someone who does not know who Daryl Zanuck is, is going to like watch this show. Well, I think when earlier on in the season, when we saw the whole number of Yes Man, when 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 Tom was playing the part, like I real I, I do think you get, you know, you get the message that this guy is gross. Um yeah in terms of the way he talks about her, the things he's, the way he talks about Marilyn, the things he says about her, you know, that she's just a pair of big bazooms. um, Yeah. And, and basically like, and I can snap my fingers and like make a new one tomorrow and like get, you know, get some new girls in here. So I think, I think that song establishes him as a villain. Um, Yeah. And well, I well ask that song made me curious to see if Toronto Burke had particularly talked ever about the, you know, the phenomenon of the couch, the casting couch and all that. And the thing is like, we have to remember is that Toronto Burke's work did not like center around, you know, Hollywood or any of these like director dudes, but her, her work of course inspired like, you know, a, a lot of what's happening, you know, in, you know, holding people's feet to the fire in Hollywood. So I'm sort of babbling around getting to my point, which is I found an article on backstage.com that came out in 2018. And it's like a guide to dealing with sexual harassment, like at work. (laughs) When did this come Uh, out? 2018. Okay. And then it got updated. I don't know what the updates were, but there was a little note saying it got updated again this year. So there's a section that I'll read. And if this is too long, you can cut out as much of it as you want. So the, the, the subheading is, how do I know if this is an abuse of power, even if it's consensual? And so uh, the writer is Ashley Steves. And she writes, harassment can be targeted to stagehands, actors, writers, designers, anyone. However, the power dynamics of a situation can vary greatly and control the outcome. Even if a relationship or act is consensual, if one of the two consenting individuals has a position of power over the other, it is an unavoidable factor that dictates the relationship's circumstances. Consider a relationship between a director and an actor. If the two engage in a consensual act, no matter what that act is, for as long as the two persons are working together in that context, the director is still in a position to leverage their influence should the situation change for the worse, unless one has the star power to influence major decisions. In most cases, who would the production rather lose, an actor or the director? Even if both people have consented in one situation, the dynamics of another situation may be entirely different. What is consensual with one person may not be with another, 
but the advantages for one over the other remain the same. Anita Hill said it best. If you have an individual who feels entitled to do whatever they want to whomever they want because they're in that position of power, then that is your red flag. And I kind of liked, I, I read a bunch of stuff before I sort of settled on that as my takeaway, my takeaway piece of background reading <laughs> for the episode, <laughs> um, because it also makes me think about like Derek and Rebecca and like who's in the wrong for that as well. And the Derek and Rebecca thing like is Derek and Ivy have a conversation later on and like, yeah, we. I think we'll. I think we'll have a lot to talk about there. Well, yeah, I mean, he just makes it seem like this is no big deal. Like, well, of course, directors bang their stars. That's what we do. Well, what's so interesting about it? Well, let's talk about it now. Ivy goes to him and says, "Like three days ago, you told me you loved me, and those were the last words you spoke to me." And he says, "Rebecca needs my attention, and I'm giving it to her. And is there any other approach?" <laughs> And, you know, he goes on to say, like, this is why you and I work. Like, we're both professionals. Like, you should understand this. And it makes me very curious about Derek's younger years and his younger yeah. years in the theater. Because <laughs> he seems to have picked up, one, the idea that, um, like, his sexual attention is very, very valuable. <laughs> and two like like but yeah like that this is a given that this is a norm that that you buck someone up by <laughs> by sleeping with them um <laughs> <laughs> or yeah and it, it it makes me wonder a lot about yeah his early years in the theater and how he was raised and yeah what he experienced as a younger person <laughs> to you know, to solidify these ideas in his mind. Like, did, because, it, did his father, like, do this sort of thing with, like, his actors or, you know? <laughs> yes, because we know his father was, like, some some sort of produced, some sort of bigwig in the theater. Yeah. We know his father is some sort of bigwig in the theater who gave him a leg up and that his father is gay or mm. sleeps with men. Those are the two, you know, those are the things we know. And we know that, ba oh, back in the cost of art, interesting, Remember, he was like coming on to a woman at mm -hmm. the the fundraising party, and yeah. he and he said to Ivy then, like you know, like this is just business, and of course, like I'm going to come on to you know come on to her. She's a potential investor. Mm -hmm. um, so interesting that they're both written by the same person. Those two episodes, and that yeah. they both have this Derek espousing this theory of like. Even though he is the powerful, well, you know, even though he is the director and he is like, whatever, he has risen to a high, a, a high position of status in this world, he still thinks like he has to sleep with people in order mm -hmm. to get things mm -hmm. that he wants or needs. And then in the pilot, we have kind of the reverse in where he thinks Karen should sleep with him because he has something she wants or needs. It's, Derek is a troubled fellow, I think. Well, in it, I'm saying this half facetiously, but I guess in a way it's at least he, you know, he, yes, he thinks people should sleep with him 
if he has something they, they need, but at least he's willing to also sleep with other people. <laughs> you know, he puts his money where his mouth is in terms of sexual favors. Mm -hmm. He's willing to give and receive in a weird way for power for money. I don't understand dark. I don't know if, just like Rebecca may not make sense week to week, Derek may, might not make sense week to week either. <laughs> but yeah, that this is certainly one thread that has at least come through in these two episodes in terms of Derek thinks Derek thinks he needs to sleep with people in order mm -hmm. to, you know, succeed as a director, even though he's already succeeded as a director. And Derek needs to lay down on a couch and think through that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my it's goodness. Like, this isn't yes. normal. Yeah. And I feel like it's being presented like it's normal. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't think even in 2012 that this was a normal attitude for a director to have. And what's weird is like, so both times, like Ivy is the one he's talking to about this in terms of like, well, of course I'm going to sleep with her or like, of course I'm going to flirt with her. And neither time does like Ivy say, wait, that, you know, that's messed up, Derek. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, so like, yeah, the show never, like, the show never says, like, this is not the norm. Yeah. Well, that's what makes season two interesting <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the smash number, you're not a fan. It's, <laughs> I think, just from a like, context. It's like, I like, I think, you know, I think it's a great villain scene, mm -hmm. but we're, you know, we're getting it some, you know, fairly out of context and we don't know how Zanuck is portrayed in, in yes, Bombshell as a whole. Yeah, we don't know how Zanuck is portrayed whole. in, yeah, the broader show, but mm -hmm. like, this is kind of like Zanuck's Ursula number, his like poor, unfortunate souls, mm -hmm. I feel, where, except you know Ursula is the, Little Mermaid, you know Ursula is the villain, but she yeah. gets a great number. Um, yeah. And yeah. Well, I guess Yes Man is his is his villain song or his villain yeah. introduction anyway. But yeah, this number, yeah, you're right. Like that, it, it it is troubling that it on a surface level anyway. It seems to be saying, yeah, all the women were super happy to like sleep with Daryl Zanuck and mm -hmm. do whatever in order to become a star. And you Which, know, in in researching for this episode and 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 my reaction to that that number, I I went down a I fell down a rabbit hole of game theory, <laughs> and like I was reading about like the prisoner's dilemma, and you know just these like philosophical I don't even know if philosophy is the category this falls under, but just like something I was reading was explaining how like if if all women participate in the casting couch there's still not enough parts to go around for every woman who's going to willing to sleep with like a director or a producer like they can't all get the part because there's still more hollywood starlets than there are roles mm -hmm. it's not advantageous for women to offer sexual favors to get parts because it, it's diminishing returns mm-hmm Again, from a pure spectacle perspective, like this number is my is my favorite um, in terms of like the choreography and mm -hmm. the fact that it gives like all of 
all of the women in the ensemble like get to have their own moment in the sun and mm-hmm. like their own individual look in this like they all get their own color in this mm-hmm. so having to be none of them are part of the background in this number they're all part of the foreground and i like that and i like that for the ensemble like getting a getting a fun number but you raise a good point And both yeah. things can be true. Both things can be true. It can be and a good musical number, and it can be a troubling portrayal of the role women play in the casting couch. Yes. Because and I, I, I apologize, I, I say women as like a catch-all, but like really what I mean is like actors, like where, you know, what, what I, when I say women, what I mean are actors, like the yeah. role that actors play in the casting couch, because they are never the ones with the power. You know, for, no, the for actors Blizzard. are never the ones with power. <laughs> <laughs> never. I um, mean, you know, the Rebecca, you know, you know, the, I thought that that thing stars, I read the we differentiate was interesting. Between stars and actors, yeah, yeah. But also, like, it's like Rebecca didn't come on to him. But I, I don't know. I, I don't understand. I, I mean, I'm, I have probably uh, said this and said it a dozen more times, but like. Derek and how he acts with women in a professional setting is a huge flaw of this show because well, everyone acts like this is like a normal, accept, normal and acceptable behavior. And I just, I don't think. Well, also how Derek acts with women in a professional setting in this show is also baffling. It's mm-hmm. not even that it's a flaw. It's that it, it's, it's, it's baffling. Um, <laughs> the fact that, well, I think the most baffling part is that, like, he thinks he needs to prop up Rebecca through, I guess, making her feel sexually desirable, I guess. But the fact that Rebecca seems to be into it when there's never been, like, any spark between them yeah. whatsoever since day one. There's never been, there's never even there's never even been like this antagonistic kind of spark like yeah to to her like he he's he's never been anything than like whatever this amusing little british gnat in the corner who's been mm-hmm. um who who's been who gripes when she's late um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the fact that his his go-to move for bucking up an actress seems to work in this case i think it's the strangest part about it yeah um and i think we talked about that in the last episode but it it bears repeating i mean (laughs) like you know i think it would have been it would have been interesting if he had like gone in to to like whatever do this like you know sweep her up into a kiss or something and she'd been like what the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and he'd be like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I was trying to, to comfort you and, like, make you feel, you know, better about yourself. <laughs> and she could have been like, what? <laughs> um, how would you wind to sleep me, sleep with me make me feel better about me? I'm a movie star. Yeah. Everyone wants to sleep with me. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's mystifying to me. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if it had been like a cable show and they could have gotten a lot more graphic about 
like whether it's true because this was supposed to be like a sexy show yeah this was supposed to be like a sexy showtime show yeah i think originally so like if they had been able to be a lot more graphic would derek would derek make more sense because we would have like a kind of more background on maybe I wonder, do we have anything? Oh, well, you know, while we're here, one thing, one other thing to mention is that the man playing Daryl Zanuck is Mark Kudich, who is a a big Broadway guy, a big musical theater guy, which is not surprising. Some of his credits include Birdie in Bye Bye Birdie, Gaston in the Broadway uh, Beauty and the Beast. I can see him being great at that. Yes. Oh, and this is a fun one. He played the lying, cheating, male chauvinist pig in Nine to Five, the musical. <gasps> Fun! They get guilty. Yay! Yes, and like you know, you you can see like like you can see him being great in all those. But like I do think I, even though he really only got to sing like what two lines, three lines in Yes Man, <laughs> yeah. And then the other song is all is all the women singing, you know, and him just kind of being there and lecherous for it but like i think he i i really enjoyed his performance as this lecherous powerful charismatic guy yeah you know and i yeah so i thought he i thought it was fun in terms of like he kind of dropped out of the sky did this number and mm-hmm. then disappeared <laughs> for the rest of smash and he's from hackensack new jersey Oh, a great yes. place to be from. Yes. Do you know that David Mamet wrote a play about Harvey Weinstein? That tracks. Um, it, just, I, it sounds, it, it just popped up randomly in my research. And at, at first I read about it and it was, it was uh, mentioned as a, something that would be happening in the future. And then I looked up to see if it had actually happened and it did. Oh. And everyone... And and people didn't like it. <laughs> okay. And, oh, okay. Interesting. I thought you meant like sometime in the past he had written a play where no, the character it, was secretly Harvey Weinstein. But no. Was, oh, you mean after all of this happened, he wrote a play? Yeah. It came, uh, yeah. It premiered in like 2019. And it did, oh boy. Uh, I don't think David Mamet is equipped to like comment on this on this well, kind of stuff. Just, yeah. I because when I saw it. Uh, when it was phrased as something that was happening in the future, I was like, oh, God, no, David Mamet should not write a play. Well, Harvey because Weinstein. on some level, <laughs> on some level, every David Mamet play has a Harvey Weinstein character. In yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was uh, John Malkovich in a fat suit. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, oh that's, oh, yep. that's, that's real bad. Yeah. So that came and went. Okay. Well, I think that's <laughs> destined to be forgotten by history, which is probably for yeah. the best. Mm. Oh. I just can't believe David Bam. It's like, who should weigh in on this? I know. <laughs> Me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I think he's ever ready for a misguided hot take. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! Mm. I think David Mamet is a great example of if we make room for other people, maybe some of the more unnecessary voices <laughs> 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 will, will, you know, not that they 
they can't ever be heard, but maybe there's mm-hmm. room for other people. <laughs> yeah. It's like maybe someone can do a revival of Glengarry Glen Ross like every 20 years is kind of an academic exercise and then yeah. be like, that was interesting. Let's go back to doing other plays now. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe he just gets one and maybe like Glengarry Glen Ross, like that's his just one. Like, I, that, his, that's his just one. That's definitely yeah. his just one. I was, uh, I was in a production of the water engine once and yes, and it's just like all, it, it was, yes, I, 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 I played two characters and it was like, definitely like the whole, it was like the version horror troupe. Mm-hmm. Like one was like the really super over-sexualized like secretary. And then one was like the sister, like the blind sister. You oh know, boy. Was, like, you know, so, which therefore makes her like unfuckable. <laughs> <laughs> so... Oh, and was she virtuous too? And could she see into people's hearts because she was blind? Yeah. I think I got kidnapped or something too. I don't remember. Yeah. Oh, she was a damsel. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that David Mamet work. So that's fine. (laughs) All right. Okay. So we have that number. Um, then we go backstage. Karen is checking her phone for the umpteenth time. And Ivy is like, Karen, like, just, just stop. But, and they have a little moment together and she's like, you were really good out there. And she says, you were too. And then they hug. And it's really I nice. I want them to be friends. I want them to be friends too. They are friends. That's what makes this so hard for Ivy. They are yeah. friends at this point. It's like a weird friendship, but it is a friendship. Then we are because back on. Ivy was helping by sleeping with Dev. Because now Carrie can find out what a bad guy he is and how he's not good enough for her. Yes. So she wasn't trying to help, but she did inadvertently help, probably, yeah. in the long term. So then we're back on stage and we see this gorgeous like bedroom set and Rebecca is singing secondhand White Baby Grand in this broken voice and it's interspersed with her talking to someone on the phone saying like please won't you come over and whatever i like to talk to people and and then she dies and that's the end of the show and um the lights rise and the audience kind of sits there like huh and then there is a smattering of applause and i understand Um, that it is truly confusing for the audience because you You do like, I mean, a lot of musicals are about like depressing subjects, but they always manage to end on a a note of something like, yes. you know, Jean Valjean and Fantine's like souls are at rest because <laughs> like their children have, you know, security and, and a free France. <laughs> like, <you> know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is certainly like breaking the tropes of musical theater in terms of you end on like some sort of rousing or like stirring, you yeah. know, big song. <laughs> you know? But anyway, there's the smattering of applause. And I love this. Someone, the second the lights come up, someone gets up to leave and like walks like, you know, past like Julia and Tom sitting in their seat, like in, in the row that they're sitting in and walks right past them to like head out the door without even bothering to applaud. And <laughs> you see the cast backstage as, you know, the lights come up and the smattering happens. And then they all have to put the big smiles on their face to come out for the curtain call yeah. and, you know, pretend everything's fine. 
And then we have this nice effect where the theater empties and mm -hmm. we see the cast then leaving, leaving through the theater um, back in their street clothes being like, wow, that was something. Um, uh -huh. Bobby has a great line. I forget what it is. And then there's Dev waiting for Karen and she apologizes to him. She apologizes yeah. to him, not because she was wrong about anything she said last week, but because she just doesn't want to be in this fight, I think. Yeah. Um, and she introduces him to Ivy. Mm -hmm. And this is where we learn Ivy's a really good actor because she just smiles at him and is like, oh, yeah. the famous dad. Hi, nice to meet you. And, and they make a point. There's a lot. There's just there's there are some real exposition lines in this episode. Um, you know, like Jessica at the beginning reminding us that like Ivy has strikes against her because of heaven on earth, and mm -hmm. and that it's like uh, Ivy, come meet my boyfriend Deb. You haven't met before. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, we are in the lobby with our big four: Eileen and Derek and Julia and Tom, mm -hmm. and they're talking about the 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 response the show just received. Yeah. Derek, I think it's Derek who says, you can't end a musical with a suicide. Julia says, that's what happened. She killed herself. <laughs> and But anyway, so they're like, you know, kind of debating about what to do next. And this is a pretty humorous scene. This gives me shades of Soap Dish, like with, with Julia as, uh, you know, Whitney, uh, Whoopi Goldberg's character being like, mm -hmm. he has no lips, no vocal cords. What do you want me to do? How can I write for a guy who doesn't have a head? <laughs> and Julia's like, that's what happened. She died. How else do you want to end it? She died. Um, so, but Eileen basically is like, well, we need a new song and we've got three performances to get through this weekend. So this is where we establish where we are in the weekend, which is yeah. helpful. And we need a new song by Monday morning. So, you know, we'll get through the show as is, you know, for this weekend. And then we need a new song. And then everyone disperses. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we cut to Tom and Sam having a late dinner together. And Sam invites uh, Tom to go to church with him on Sunday. And I was like, oh, God. Church. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> then, it's established that we are in Sam's hometown and that mm -hmm. Sam goes to church. So these things yes. track. You're right. It does track. Yes. Um, but I've remember now, the I first have a time thing I... to say later about this church scene, but I yeah. have no problem with the fact that Sam wants his boyfriend to accompany him to his like childhood church while they're in his hometown. Yeah. So then we cut to a fancy restaurant where Nick and Eileen and Ellis are drinking. And Ellis is clearly in his cups a bit. And he's... Talking above his pay grade, perhaps. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. So Ellison is in his cups and saying, you know, that the problem with the show is Rebecca and he doesn't know how Derek is going to get the performance out of her. And uh, Eileen says in passing, I was like, oh, well, are you taking on directing as well? He <laughs> sort of says like, you know, she says like, oh, are you like, yeah, like, are, are, are you are you directing now? And he goes, oh producing i mean someone has to like he's, that's what it is uh, yeah and it's like no yes and, and then nick's like you gotta go kid and <laughs> you know pours him into a cab <laughs> yeah <laughs> i just i like nick i uh, really i just like him i like i like people deserve nick's I just, I love what, like, a, what a, a functional adult Nick is. Mm -hmm. It's like, Nick just comes off as a man to me. Yes. Like, 
<laughs> he's so like secure in himself yes. and yeah and his apartment is decorated <laughs> yes he decorated his own apartment so nick goes to like pour alice into a cab and then eileen is like you know gazes across to like where the you know there's a piano player, you know, in the bar who's been tinkling the ivories this whole time. And he starts to play September song by Kurt Vile. And she gets up and walks over to him. And she's like, I know this song. And he's like, why don't you sing it? (laughs) (laughs) And then she does. And this Eileen singing September song is another one of my favorite, favorite moments in all of it Smash. It is lovely. She looks great. It's, oh my you know, God, her legs crossed. Legs, on that stool. Jesus. Yeah. Stunning. It's um, the, you, you know, the, the, the pianist and then like uh, the, the guy with the, the martini, the like heavily featured like background player. That's, you know, that's uh, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitmer. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we have, and then it's her grandfather's song, you mm-hmm. know, he sang it. He was the first one to sing it on Broadway. And so it's just, you just remember who the fuck Angelica Houston is for a moment, you know, in case you forgot. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and I didn't know the part about her grandfather until yesterday that Kurt Vile and the guy who wrote the uh, Maxwell Anderson wrote the song for Walter uh, Houston for a show they were doing called Knickerbocker Holiday. And that just they sounds it, like a long ago musical. <laughs> it really does. From like the 20s, the 30s. And they, they, they wrote it especially for his quote, limited vocal range. Mm. And uh, I love Kurt Vile so much. Uh, I love, and I, I love non-singers singing Kurt Vile. Like yeah. it's, oh, the pathos in this song is. Yeah. It's a great match. Like it's, and it, it I love some talk singing. Mm. And, I love some Rex Harrison talk singing. Oh, yes. Love, no, I truly, truly do. And I, I you know, there's room for that in the in the canon of musical theater um and i just think this is like i mean this is a movie star you know singing a broadway number Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes ah this is someone using star power to you know pull over a number put over a number but there is i don't know if i brought this up before here there is um an album of Marianne Faithful singing Kurt Vile songs after uh, she completely destroyed her voice called 20th Century Blues. And I love it so much. And yeah, go Marianne find Faithful, that. Marianne Faithful's uh, rendition of Pirate Jenny is on my Pirate Jenny playlist where I collect versions of Pirate Jenny that I especially <laughs> love. <laughs> oh my God. It's funny because I... You know, my first introduction to um, Marianne Faithful was post voice destroying Marianne yeah, Faithful, and I'm like, too. oh my god, I love her voice so much. Like it's, yeah. it's like all cracked and like you know haggard, and, has so, and she has so much character in it, and she can like just convey a song so well. And then I heard her original voice, like back before, like she was like a drug addict for thirty years, and I was like, mm-hmm. oh my god, she had like this gorgeous gorgeous like bell like you know 
silvery voice. Um, and I love that, you know, those two voices existed in the same human being. That's like, that's some amazing stuff. I think I'm really attracted to non-singers figuring out a way to put over a song. I've probably talked about Fred Astaire before here, but like there, there is another person with like a very limited vocal range and like not a lot of like inherent vocal ability mm-hmm. who like manages to like really put over a song in just like a magical way. I believe I read this somewhere, but I don't know where, so I can't cite sources. But I I believe I've read somewhere that Cole Porter said like the person he most enjoyed listening to sing his music was Fred Astaire. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I can uh, see that working for Cole Porter too. Yeah. Yeah. So even though some of his songs are very difficult to sing. Oh, and- absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. he runs the gamut. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but then he also, because he also composed songs for dancers who sing to sing as well. Yeah. You know, so there's. And I think that's like such like the fun thing about musical theater in terms of like a lot of these musical numbers were built around the the strengths and weaknesses of very specific individuals. Yeah. And then like, that's just the way they are for the rest of time. Because yeah. one person like had a weak left ankle or couldn't hit a high C or whatever yeah. it is. And I love that. And that's why so, we, we, that's why we, we place so much import on like who was the original cast and it's why it gets like printed. And like, you know, when you go and you buy a play or, or the, the book of a musical, it's like it, that, that original cast is, is listed there because you know, they impact the work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I love theater. Oh, I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my um, God. So then it's the next morning. We uh, cut to Dev and Karen in their hotel room, and they're in bed together. And But I, I think it's... I think it's pretty obvious that sex did not happen last night. Some sort of reconciliation happened, Mm -hmm. but it didn't seem like sex did because Karen is in like her, again, she's very gray this episode in this gray, like tank top and like pajama pants. And Dev is also fully clothed in like Mm -hmm. pajama clothes. Yeah. She's wearing like gray and brown. Like it's really like, it is not. um, Yeah. There's some like strong choices. Maybe we should look at Smash as, maybe we need to look at Smash as an anthology (laughs) where each episode isn't necessarily connected, but they exist (laughs) in the same universe. Yeah, that works. It's like Black Mirror, except it's more songs. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and they reminisce about how they met, which, and this is new information, they met in London? I'm curious about that. Like, if that means, did Dev move to New York from London for Karen? Yeah, it's an interesting piece of information. I mean, I guess you could, well, maybe she was there for for work. Maybe he was there for work. We don't know where they were in their respective Yes, yeah, but yes, so that's a little, you know, bomblet that drops that we never learn more about, but yeah. Was she doing a semester abroad? Who knows? I don't know. Because it is. I will point out again, it is incredibly vague how green Karen is because she's got an agent who can get her into a Broadway show, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she 
has no experience. Like, and everyone's so constantly talking about her lack of experience. And it's your first real curtain. But like, yes, yes. Ivy said that to her earlier, you know, in earlier, like, come on, Karen, get off your phone. It's your first real curtain. And yeah. And like, she went to school. It's not like it's like the first time she's been on stage, you know. But to the cast, like at least that's yeah. To the cast, at least, this is the first real thing she's ever done. Mm-hmm. But and I, yeah, and that line is really just—it's to show Ivy being kind and like. And like, also, I think Ivy being like, you know, Dev isn't good enough for you. Stop like fixating on him. Except she can't yeah. say that because because <laughs> she doesn't know enough. But she does yeah. know. But I'm, yeah. So, but so Dev and Karen are snuggling. She's all sweet and happy and she asks for the ring that he presented to her just the night before remember that was just last night (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that he told her he kissed another woman then proposed and then slept with someone else and he says he left it in new york city because apparently like we're going with the fiction that he he drove back to new york and then came back up to boston again so he took he probably took like a business train yeah it's possible so um yeah so she tells him to ask her again and he does and she says yes and we're all like oh karen no you were right the first time you were right the first time karen um yeah you're in you're still in tech karen yeah, and then um, we're backstage. Derek is talking to Linda, the stage manager, about, you know, show stuff. And then Ivy comes up, and Linda just kind of, like, dematerializes into the air. Like, she, like, vanishes. Yeah, because I – and this is something, yeah, I enjoyed. Because I – with the look that, like, Linda gave to when Ivy came in, like, it's clear that – even though we have not seen Linda gossip with anyone, it's clear that <laughs> Linda knows all the stuff that is going on. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like, that's a fun thing with Bobby too. Like we saw him say hi to like Julia and Frank yeah. when Julia first arrives and he's just and like, it, Hey, welcome to Boston. And, and it was loaded with meaning. <laughs> yes, it was. It's like, he knows everything that's happening. And this is where Ivy confronts Derek and where Derek gives his spiel about, you know, of course I'm going to sleep with Rebecca. It's for the show. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then we go to Rebecca's dressing room where we hear Rebecca talking on the phone to someone about how terribly the show went last night. And (laughs) um, the way, and this is where, this is where we get savvy Rebecca again, in terms of, she's like, no one clapped. And I'm not speaking metaphorically. I mean, no one clapped. <laughs> and, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And then Karen comes in to see her and she's like, it's not your fault. And Rebecca is, says to her, like, I'm the star. That means everything is my fault. And she takes a sip of her green smoothie and coughs a little bit. And then they're talking and she takes another sip. And then she starts choking. And Karen is like, hey. Hey, help somebody. Uh, <laughs> She's like Lassie. <laughs> She's like, Rebecca, bark, bark. Rebecca drank a drink. Bark, bark. Yes. 
So note to note to self: do not rely on Karen in case of medical <laughs> emergencies. Karen, yeah, you know, because instead of and I get it's for dramatic purposes or whatever, but instead of calling nine one, she's just like, hey, somebody, come do something. So then we cut to the cast and, you know, they are all sitting in seats in the house and Derek is on stage giving them an update about Rebecca that, yes, she is in the hospital and she is sedated because she had exposure to peanuts, which she is definitely allergic to. And they are canceling today and tomorrow's shows, but everyone stay in town and you know, the show will go forward on Monday and they have a lot of work to do. And he says, no tweeting um, in a way that makes it clear that he is very disdainful of social media. And then Sam says to his fellow ensemble folks sitting in the house that he's going to go to church tomorrow and say a prayer. And then the whole gang is like, yeah, we'll go too. And then I sigh again. And I... (laughs) Again, I cannot overstate that it is the, the show has very much established like who Sam is, and you know religion and church and family are, are big parts of that. But I also the, for this like hard drinking, stressed out cast, they probably all just want to sleep in on Sunday. <laughs> like churches in the morning. That's like <laughs> I think Bobby says something along those lines. Like in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> And then we cut to Randall confronting Eileen outside on the sidewalk, basically saying, this was no accident. Um, (laughs) And then we go to the fancy hotel lobby where the big four are staying. Eileen and Derek and Julie and Tom are sitting in couches in the lobby. And she, Eileen is conveying what Randall told her that this was not an accident and and Derek jokes that Jack like hey, it could have been IVs. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where Eileen says, like, you know, I'm going to whatever, call the press people and try to stop this from being a big deal. And Julia raises the million dollar questions, the million dollar question, what'll we do if she doesn't recover in time? And Tom, immediately, loyal friend that he is, immediately Mm -hmm. jumps in and says, well, how do you do it? And, you know, Julia says, but Karen's the understudy. And Derek's like, but she hasn't been rehearsed. And she's green. Remember, she's green. (laughs) And then we cut to the hotel room in the much less fancy hotel where the cast is staying. And they are basically having the same conversation. This is, so Ivy, Ellis, uh, Bobby, and Dennis are sitting in a room. Again, having the same conversation of like, well, what will they do with Rebecca can't go on on Monday. And then Ivy gets a text and leaves the room. And we see her outside the hotel meeting Dev. And Dev asks, and Dev is like, basically like, uh, I think I left a ring in your room. And, (laughs) and Ivy's like, what, are you going to propose to Karen? And Dev is like, none of your business, because he is the worst. And he's very rude to Ivy, I feel. Yes, um, he's very rude. He does not treat her. He treats her like she's He he the treats her like she's the him. blame. Yes. When... Like she's the tomato trying to offer sexual favors to get apart. <laughs> How dare she? Yes, but there yeah. we go. Just like Karen was to blame 
because Dev chose not to reach out to the feeler in DC about a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh, I hate Dev. I hate him. Hate Dev. So then we are um, in the hotel, a hotel room with Karen and Dev, and they're talking about what if Rebecca isn't ready. And Karen is basically saying, like, I can't, you know, I, ha- I can't do it. I haven't rehearsed it. They don't rehearse the understudies until after previews. And Dev basically hands her the binder with the music and is like, you can do it. And mm-hmm. she starts looking at the binder and singing. I do love a little, a little set set dressing note like on the bureau in the hotel room it's like chock full of like it's got like a hot pot and like snacks and all this stuff and I'm like yeah that that rings true that's what you would have (laughs) out of town oh then we go back to the fancy hotel lobby Michael comes up to Julia and is like I came here for you and Julia's like I don't want you here and um I don't want it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's my Jon Snow impression. I don't want it. <laughs> uh, but basically, Julia's like, I didn't want you here. It wasn't my idea to bring you here. Like, I almost left the show. And then we have the Juliet adultery theme playing in the background. And then the next scene is Julia and Tom in the empty theater. Tom is sitting at the piano, ready to work on the new song that they have to write to fix the show by Monday and Julia is, is basically like, I like, I'm so furious at you. Uh, why did you put me in this position? You know, Michael just tried to kiss me and, you know, and this is Julia here. We do some, you know, some backsplaining um, in terms of Julia says contractually, they couldn't have outvoted us if we had stuck together and said no to Michael being in the show. So because I think we had a question about that last week in terms of who had the power to actually decide these things. Yeah. And so this is like, this is like a great emotional fight um, Mm -hmm. in terms of like, we're both, both, you know, both parties are hurt and both parties have like some right on their side um, where Julia says, you put the show ahead of my family. And Tom says, you did that. You know, you're the one who, who like did this and I tried to stop, you know, I did everything I could to like, whatever, warn you off mm-hmm. of doing what you did. And then I stood by you um, after everything like went to hell. And it reminds me of that scene in The Kids Are All Right, where uh, Julianne Moore and Annette Benning, like, again, like they're having, I think they'd just been out to dinner with like friends of theirs, but like, they're having like this fight that you have, like, you know, with someone you've been in a relationship with a long for a long time in terms of, I think their fight was like, Julianne Moore is like, you never wanted me to have a career. And then that Benning is like, you, uh, you always got excited about things and then dropped them. And she's like, you always hated whenever I was working. And it's like, they're both right. You know? Yeah. They, yeah. So anyway, Julia leaves then. And I love that movie, by the way, we should do a podcast about the kids oh. are all right. Oh my God. That is a great movie. Where were we? All right, Juliet leaves the theater. Um, then we cut to a dive bar. You know, this is the gang's all here having drinks, uh, the, the ensemble. And, you know, they, they've just heard through the cast hotline that Rebecca is going to be back in the show. And Dev is there with Karen. And Dev, you know, kind of shoots Ivy a look. And she shakes her head to say, like, no, I have not found 
the engagement ring you think you left in my room. And also, um, why is he like he's he's bothering Ivy way too much? And also, they have each other's cell phone numbers. So like, why doesn't he just text her? Yo, lost my ring. Phone? Well, like he 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 texted her, or called her to come down. That's right. You're to right. Him You're right. Hotel. They do have each other's cell phone numbers. So. And I, so, like, why does he need to meet her out on the street to have this conversation? Well, and that's... He's that's not because... good at this. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, like, yeah. You know who would it... be good at this? RJ. RJ would have, like, triaged this situation already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. She'd have, like, a backup ring in the works. Like, RJ you know. would know, like, you know, some sort of black ops cat burglar would be yeah. able to like break into ivy's room and search it <laughs> um then let's see oh are we at church yes now we're at church so it's the morning it's sunday morning and we're outside the church with sam and sam's parents and tom and ivy and they're chatting and then dev and karen show up and karen's like thanks for inviting me i love church I'm going to sing with you. I, which I believe. I believe Karen Cartwright loves church. I don't believe that Karen Cartwright would Can dazzle the crowd at a black church. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, this yeah. could have been an opportunity to, like, let Tony Award winner Leslie Odom Jr. have a number to himself. Oh, I know. But, yeah, so anyway... So we're at church. Everyone has showed up, even though they're hungover. And I've made myself less annoyed with the church thing because mm-hmm. in my head, I framed it as, and okay, I'm sure there are lots of actors who are religious and go to yeah. church and find church very replenishing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I, I think I, I, I disagree with like everyone in this in this universe that we've met going to church and that like kind of solving all their problems. But I feel I've reframed it in my head of like, it's not the fact that they went to church that made them all kind of like sit and think and have epiphanies. It's the fact that there was singing. It's the song that made them all sit and think and have epiphanies. And that makes sense to me because they're all musical people. So if I re- so if I reframe it as that in my head, it's a little better. So anyway, Frank, Julia, and Leo arrive as well. Frank, uh, Frank, and Sam kind of exchange a sentence. Basically, we we get the you know we get to convey that they have essentially conspired to get both Tom and Julia here so that they can make up from their big fight. And then we're in the church, and. It is a black church and they have, um, well, I'm very excited to see him. And I'm also very disappointed that we didn't get to see him sing or dance. But the preacher is Hinton Battle. Oh my gosh. Hinton Battle, who, okay. Huh. All right. So Hinton Battle um, plays Sweet plays like the musical theater demon in the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And that performance that he gives in that show. So good. Every time 
I watched that episode. I like rewind his, his, his scene like three times. I do a deep dive on his Wikipedia page. And then like, I forget it all later because my brain is a sieve um, at this point. And, and then I talk about it for like three days about how good (laughs) he was in, in like, just like, he's so good. Like he is, uh, he is a, and what a he, wasted resource. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So he's so good. He's such an amazing dancer. And he's like, won three Tonys. Two. Three Tonys. <laughs> yes. Oh, but um, everyone just watch that number from the Buffy episode. Once more with feeling it. It's like, cause like, it's just like everything from like his pinky to his pinky toe is like, under his complete control and every movement is so like deliberate and ah delightful he's it's so good so he's here as the preacher he he's kind of he's doing he's doing the the classic movie and television black preacher shtick i would say it is is lively it is it is a fun performance. He is my under five of the week. <gasps> he would be too, but I'm like, oh no, can we can we make Hinton battle an under five? It seems wrong. It always surprises me when I like you know, especially like in it always surprises me when I find out that like someone I know or like a, a Broadway person that I enjoy is gonna be like on something. And then you see it and it's like two seconds on like Law and Order (laughs) because it's like they could be like, you know, four time Tony nominee so and so and they'll have like, they're like, they're clearly an under five. Like it's, yeah, Broadway stars don't always get to be featured players on television. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, he, I mean, he's definitely our under five of the week then, like with all apologies and do definitely. I mean, you shouldn't be, you should be. This should be the Hinton Battle Show. Oh my god! <laughs> With special guest star Megan Hilty, and not the other way. <laughs> what if he had been Sam's dad, and he and Sam had had like some sort of like epic like song fight? But anyway, Hinton Battle. But I also here. like Isaiah Whitlock. I don't want to get rid of Isaiah. Whitlock. I know. Yes, he is delightful as well. But and this is his uh, last film and television credit on IMDb. Hmm. So I don't know if he's still alive. Yeah, I just went to I went to the Wikipedia and you know nobody you know people are fast on Wikipedia. So he he is listed as being an alive person. And I mean he's certainly free to retire if he wants to, you know. Yeah. But oh oh my god, just everyone do yourselves a do yourselves a favor and watch that man dance. Oh, okay. Anyway, so then he, he does some preaching and then Sam and Karen come up to sing with the choir and we start with Sam. They are singing Stand, which is a gospel song by, I wrote this down. I don't know if I can't read my handwriting. Donnie McClurkin. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we start with Sam singing and it's simple and wonderful Mm -hmm. um and then the chorus joint the the choir joins in and then 
it's Karen's turn to, to sing a verse and she sings and it's fine. Um, I just, I, I feel like I, I always feel like they produce like this, like they produce who's the person who plays Karen. Oh, uh, uh, that would be a noted uh, Donald Trump supporter, Catherine McPhee. <laughs> That's the one. Yes. I, <laughs> I always feel like they produce Catherine McPhee more than they produce the other people sometimes. Yeah. It seems like, because it seems like her, Sam's audio and her audio went through like, like a different, like, vo- you know, a different audio mixing machine. Yeah, yeah. A bit. No, I, 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 I totally hear what you mean. Because like, and because everything she sings always sounds like a pop song. So, yeah. okay. And there's so, no soul to it. It's, it's not. It's like I enjoy Catherine McPhee. I voted for her every week on American Idol. Like I, I think she's a good singer. But she, she what's the point of having her sing a gospel song? Like t- singing gospel is a particular skill. It's like not everybody knows how to do that. Mm-hmm. Just like not everybody knows how to tap dance or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. But yeah. And so anyway, but they have her sing for plot reasons. To, well, also, you know, for plot reasons in terms of both Dev and Ivy are sitting in the church and kind of like sweating the guilt out of their pores mm-hmm. like as they're watching her and Sam and... And so we keep cutting to their faces. And so that's, you know, plot wise, that's part of it. But I think, I think we could have achieved the same thing with just Samson. Yeah. Um, And, you know, she does, she does the move where she raises her arm above her head, just like Mm -hmm. she did in the, like the bar mitzvah number, like way back a million years ago. And so then the service is over. Sam like nudges Tom to go over to talk to Julia and, she he does and they kind of um they both say they're sorry and to each other in a nice way and julia says she has an idea for the ending of the show and then uh dev and karen are outside the church and dev says i have something i need to tell you and then and here we are our second the second time in the episode where we're like oh boy it's gonna come out um but then karen's phone rings and it's rebecca calling her from the hospital and so then we see rebecca in the hospital and karen goes to visit her rebecca is packing up and she says it was in the smoothie i could taste it um and yes and that's where we learned that the peanuts were in the smoothies um and she says she's not going to go back to the show um and she doesn't want to know who did it but she just wants to like kind of get out of dodge yeah um and i love this moment of self-sabotage because as a person who self-sabotages i like i understand that fear and it's a really fun Uma Thurman performance to mm-hmm. watch, like watching that scene where she and Karen are talking in her dressing room and she's drinking the smoothie, going back, watching it, knowing that Rebecca knows yeah. after she takes the first sip, 
knowing that Rebecca knows what's in there and chooses to take the second sip. sip. Mm-hmm. Like you can see it all on her face, but it's yeah. very subtle. It's, it's real. It's some real good face acting. Yeah. Um, and so then we're back in a hotel room with the whole gang and Karen is updating them all on what's happened. And, you know, it ends with the question of, I think it's Bobby who asks it. Cause of course it's Bobby. So being like, so who'll be Marilyn then? And we cut to Karen's face and we cut to Ivy's face and then boom, that's the end of the episode. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. And we have set ourselves up for our season finale. So we have talked a lot about this episode. Oh, what was the smash lash for this episode? So AV Club had um, a nice take because we are at the point I, I said this last time but we're at the point where a lot of the reviews of smash have just gone snarky <laughs> um <laughs> and I, I in fact i think people have started to join in on recapping smash just to be snarky because mm. um, now people i think we're you know like there's definitely like the hate watching of smash has has it's we're probably has at, like hate watching yeah yeah mm-hmm. Okay, so this is by uh, Zach Handlin, who is not the usual reviewer of Smash for AV Club, but he's he uh, claims to be familiar with what our friend Noel Murray has been writing. Um, and so Zach smartly points out that everything that's not going well for Bombshell is like the actual interesting part of the show. Um, You know, he kind of like goes over like all the things that aren't working, you know, with our show within a show. And he, he writes, well, oh, this is terrible for Bombshell. It's great for the actual show we're watching because it gets us into some actual naturally occurring conflict. Mm. It, it makes perfect sense that the musical would still have some problems, especially because Julia hasn't been around and Rebecca, you know, is is new to this. And, and also he points out that uh, no one knows exactly how much of the blame to put on Rebecca which is like mm-hmm. a real thing, you know? Um, so I, we, we say this all the time and we have reviewers saying it as well, which is that the conflict of making a musical is the show people want to be watching. Yes. <laughs> we don't care about these weird love triangles and cheating um, fiancés and, like we don't care about this like but trying to make a new musical has all the conflict you need it does. <laughs> for a television show yeah yeah with and people's different perspectives and you know the conflict between art and commerce and you know yeah mm-hmm. and also yeah people getting so lost in the weeds of like the day-to-day of trying to put this show on that they forget you shouldn't end the show with someone committing suicide <laughs> Is that the position they're taking that this was a conscious suicide by Marilyn? Um, I've always well, felt Julie. Hmm. I've always because I've just I've always felt like there was an air of mystery, and it's like one of those things like we we simply do not know for sure. It's true, we don't know for sure. It could have been an overdose. It could have been nefarious, whatever mm-hmm. uh, conspiracy. Um, yeah, and I think Julia in in the. Uh, in like what I think of as the soap dish scene where the four of them are mm-hmm. talking after the preview 
of like, she died. That's what happened. What else do you want me to write? Um, <laughs> she does. One of them mentions one of the, someone says like, it's dumb to end the show on a suicide. And I think Julia says like, well, that's one theory of what happened. So yeah. Julia has definitely done her homework. I love how she talks about like, <laughs> I've um, watched everything. <laughs> exactly. She's like, they already did that in the HBO movie. Yeah. <laughs> So again, yes, much less, much less love triangles, much more show, mm-hmm. which, and you know, because if you have a show, you automatically have some love triangles. Like you don't need to like yeah. you don't need to bring in dev for them. They're just going to happen yeah, naturally in the cast. Of course, showmances are going to happen just because. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and also there's like drama that happens between rivals like Ivy and Karen. You don't have it. Mm-hmm. You don't even need to have it involved like a dude. It can mm-hmm. just simply be like the tension between which of them is going to really play Marilyn. Like that's enough. <laughs> like there doesn't have to be like this weird Derek or who gets the better part mm-hmm. as the show is, as the show is evolved. If they're both in the yeah. ensemble, who ends up with like the better part? Who ends up with the showier like number? Yeah, who's in front? You know? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's the smash lash for the week. Then uh, I think our last thing is to award our least problematic man. Yeah, we definitely have some contenders here. We can, you know, there's a. There's, yes, we have uh, a lot of yeah. you know old favorites here for least mm-hmm. problematic man. I mean, there's Nick. I mean, his face when he watched Eileen singing. God, I mean, his like face was so soft, and his eyes, ugh, yeah, yeah. That's just it's like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He just, he likes her. He's impressed by her. He loves her. He's willing to be like what she needs. What she needs from a companion in her life, he's willing to play that role. Yeah. And I feel like Tom is also like a good boy this week. Tom is like a, you know, honest with his friend and. And, and he gives Sam a really heartfelt a apology too. Yeah. Yes. Sam is also good. I mean, Tom both is, has, is honest with like one of the, the most significant relationships of his life, you know, his mm-hmm. friend and his collaborator. And he both is like honest and offers an apology. And it's the, the apology is so different when you contrast it with like Karen's apology, because Karen just doesn't want to be in a fight. And like, mm-hmm. and Tom is, it's, it's more like I, because it, it's like there wasn't a bad guy in that fight necessarily. Like yes. there's, it's it was complex and it's good writing and it's yeah. a real relationship. And I think Tom also doesn't want to be in a fight, but he also is saying like like with that I'm sorry. Like I know I did something that hurt you. Yeah. And yeah. even though like I think it was the right thing to do, I know it hurt you, and I'm sorry yeah. for that. Yeah. Mm. How do we feel about Sam and Frank conspiring to bring Tom and Julia back together? I mean, it wasn't a heavy-duty conspiracy. It's like, let's get them in the same room. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, I guess I'm sort of leaning towards Tom anyway. I mean, I don't know. I, it's funny, until you mentioned that, it didn't even occur to me that Sam and Frank would have talked about this. Because we have the line as they're going into church, like Frank saying to Sam, of like, you don't know what it took to get her here. Yeah. And I'm like, when did that conversation happen? Like, wait, when did Sam and Frank? I, they, they must have exchanged numbers at some point and been like, you know, I've got one half of this temperamental duo. You got the yeah. other half. We're going to need to team up from time to time. Yeah. Like, I, part of me was like, oh, is that is that the first time they're meeting? Like, <laughs> We have never seen them meet, eat meat or interact. Oh, well, I guess... I don't think we've ever seen them interact before. I mean, Frank went to the workshop, so okay, we can presume they met then. Sure. Were Tom and Sam even dating at that point? Yeah, I don't know. I yeah, think, so I guess I think I the lawyer was still in the mix at that point. Remember, yeah. Republic, gay Republican lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't even dating at that point. So yeah. yeah. So I, I don't think that Sam did anything particularly nefarious nefarious but I also didn't up until you said something I didn't think that that's that he actually like I was actually a little confused in the episode and I watched it twice you know for this episode I was confused with what Sam was saying at the end about feeling pretty smart about his plan and everything I'm like I still like <laughs> this was his I didn't plan. understand where the plan was like yes he, he mentioned church a couple of times the cast was like oh okay we'll go and i had no so maybe that's just a like a failure of something along the way maybe somebody told the writer like oh yeah yeah no no sam and frank know each other like it's fine like you know <laughs> so, so maybe that's just a, a a thing that didn't land for me so yeah i mean i guess maybe if i think about it yes i mean i i do maybe feel a little bit of something about people going behind people's backs to try to well it's so funny like when frank said that line i was like real annoyed at frank but then i wasn't annoyed at sam and that's because i like i like sam more than i like frank at this point and that's not yeah fair. they both did the same thing but with sam i'm like oh it's fine so let's just <laughs> give it to tom then tom tom our least problematic yeah. man congratulations well. christian borrell well, we smashed it. We smashed it. <laughs>